Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dalancin. In the past half a century, the nature of conflict and war has evolved significantly, not only technically, but also in the way that war is represented in photography and media. Since the Vietnam War, the way we see conflict through film, photographs, and pixels has had a powerful impact on the political fortunes of the campaigns and the way that war has been conducted. In Killing for Show, Photography, War and the Media in Vietnam and Iraq, Julian Stalabras tells the story of post-war conflict, how it was recorded and remembered through its iconic photography. Through accounts of events such as the Melee Massacre, the violent suppression of insurgent Fallujah, or the atrocities at Abu Ghraib, Stalabras maps a comprehensive theoretical re-evaluation of the relationship between war, politics and visual culture. We recorded this conversation before Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February 2022. Julian Stalabras is an art historian, photographer, and curator and professor at the Cortal Institute of Art. And I'm very happy to say that he joins me now to discuss his work. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thank you so much for having me. Julian, I hold in my hand a very handsome, but also a heavy and substantial volume of writing about photography, media, conflict and war, some of which is historical, some of which is theoretical, some of which is downright technical. And I'm interested, before we get into any of the details of the book, how you came to work on these topics. You write in the book about your experience of curating the Brighton Photo Biennial at some point, and I'm kind of overwhelmed at how one can make a transition between curatorial project and a scholarly one well i'm uh you know i'm an art historian uh fundamentally uh, and i work at the Portal institute of arts uh so book writing is perhaps more my thing than curation <laughs> but um back in 2006 i was asked to curate the brighton photo biennial and i'd done little bits of curation before but this was the first thing on such a scale because it was across many venues and and it was in the middle of the iraq war and so mm-hmm. warfare was a lot on my mind, as on many other people's. Uh, and I decided to use these different venues to try and build a cumulative picture of the different ways in which photography especially was used in warfare uh, and the range of it as well, from amateur images uh, right through to uh, professional army photographers mm-hmm. 
photojournalists, uh, long-term documentarians, and also those disreputable images that circulate in magazines and online of atrocities and uh, blown apart bodies and so on, which were examined by Thomas Herschel uh, with a piece called mm. The Incommensurable Banner, which he showed in Brighton. So, yeah, uh, so that event uh, eventually took place in 2008. Uh, we couldn't do a catalogue at the time because the organisation ran out of money. And eventually I did produce us uh, an edited book using many of the materials that we built together in the biennial, including lots of interviews with, uh, with photographers called Memory of Fire, uh, which was also the title of the biennial. But I've always wanted also to write a single authored book uh, about all this. It seemed to me it was a very rich, difficult and diverse subject, which had not been written about in a truly concerted way, despite the fact that, especially after 2001 and the events of 9-11 and the war on terror, all sorts of really, really interesting <laughs> photographic writings were, were produced and lots of new ground was broken in terms of history and theory. But I, what I wanted to do was to provide, a, as I say, a concerted account and an analysis, which also looked at where we'd come from and where we were going. And one of the things that I looked at in the Brighton Photo Biennial through a show called uh, Iraq Through the Lens of Vietnam mm-hmm. was the huge differences in um, the media, in photographic technology, in the political background, uh, and in the effects that uh, images of war had on publics. Well, you say that you're not a curator, even though I detect aspects of the kind of care and attention that you pay to in a book that might come from some of these experiences. But since you do want to identify as an art historian, I guess it's a fair question to ask you to give me an elevator pitch for the argument you make in the book. Well, in brief, the book is about the way in which uh, photographic images in particular are used um, to prosecute warfare, uh, the way in which they can become uh, what the Pentagon called force multipliers. Uh, mm. In other words, you have a military force, but that military force can be multiplied in various ways, uh, including the use of propaganda. So it looks at the field, a different field of, of various military images, but in particular the way in which images can be used by, well, both the Pentagon and its enemies uh, as, as force, force multipliers to um, increase uh, propaganda and military effects. Okay, well, how do you situate yourself in, in this field? There's, of course, an enormous amount of literature and theory, and I imagine the archival materials that to do with the Vietnam War and and the subsequent conflicts have been quite vast. So it would be good to understand a little bit where, where you begin your exploration. Yes, well, there's... Um... An unconscionable amount of, amount of literature around all these mm. things. Uh, I believe there's something like 50,000 books written about the Vietnam War. Most of them, of course, by Americans, most of yeah. them from the viewpoint uh, you know, of the dominant power. So it's not necessarily a very good literature. You certainly wouldn't want to read the whole thing. <laughs> um, and much of it, of course, also from the point of view of um, uh, American soldiers. It was a difficult project, and I don't think I realized when I started it how difficult it would be. It took uh, all in all about 10 years to write the thing. Mm. Um, and uh, as you'll appreciate from having read it, it's a very long book, uh, although I tried to make it uh, 
I wouldn't say an easy read because much of what the, <laughs> the material that I'm looking at is quite grueling, but at least I wanted to make it as clear and as accessible for a general reader as possible. Mm. But in terms of things that have been you know, going on and which, which you know, really stimulated me, uh, it was partly to do with new kinds of image production and um, new ways into photojournalism. So one might think of people like Thomas Dworzak, for instance, who was the president of Magnum for a while, uh, and his very interesting interventions uh, in, making, in making little books about Taliban studio portraiture, for mm -hmm. instance, or making Instagram mind books uh, to do with the Ukraine-Russia conflict, in fact. Uh, so uh, assembling you know, social media strands, in a sense, um, and, and looking at the, the whole range of production, which is open on these platforms, so that you get juxtapositions of, again, atrocity images, pictures of people's girlfriends, cats and food, uh, mm -hmm. ruins, uh, all of these things in, you know, uh, in a kind of rather ghastly uh, proximity. Here, Van Kestren would be another very good example, uh, someone who uh, made, you know, remarkable work, both embedded and unembedded in Iraq, uh, and work which was always more, one felt, on the side of the civilians than, than the armed forces that he was sometimes obliged to accompany. Uh, but also someone who um, builds those things into large multimedia installations um, yeah. has found new ways of showing it and produces really interesting books out of that material as well. Or Eugenie Gol um, Dolberg with her book Open Shutters of Iraq, which is a really remarkable project to a great risk to these women to train Iraqi women in the art of photographic storytelling. Yeah. Uh, she did this in workshops in Syria, which was then safe, and then to get them back into Iraq uh, and, and get to tell their stories. Some really remarkable views of that war from the point of view of Iraqi women, it's particularly women who have uh, suffered more perhaps than anybody else through all of this. So there's, there's those sorts of practices. And then alongside that, uh, a lot of rethinking of uh, photographic theory Ariella Azale is the one obvious figure that yeah. one will point to here. Ways of thinking which move beyond the sort of rather postmodern terminus that a lot of photographic theory had got into, uh, and ways that move beyond a rather, I thought, reflex thinking which comes out of Michel Foucault and would reduce all of this to a sort of mm. power discourse yeah. so that photography can never make any interventions, uh, and never any radical interventions anyway. Yeah, I'll point to that, or uh, Harriman and Lucate's remarkable work on um, iconic images uh, and the conditions yeah. under which they're made, uh, or Blake Stimson's work on the public sphere and on the family of man, um, and on what he sees as a sort of fairly brief moment, especially in the US, when possibilities are opened for humanist photography and a kind of non-imperialist global consciousness. Well, you've mentioned quite a few thinkers, writers, and quite a lot of approaches already, and, and they do all make, they do all surface in the book at one point or another. And in as much as our conversation isn't supposed to be strictly an advert for your book, I do want to make it clear to our listeners that this is an incredibly impressive effort, and it is readable, bizarrely, despite its, despite its subject matter. You have 20-odd self-contained essays, which, and I think the project overall is 
not a challenge, but it is it is a successor to the ambition of something like Ariela Azulay's The Social Contract of Photography. This, this is definitely one of those books that should circulate in art history departments and much, much further. So that's that's my compliment for you. Now let's go back to doing the, the dirty work of, of figuring out how we approach this, this vast array. Could Vietnam and Iraq be any different? And how do we even begin to understand these, these histories? How do you even take a step back to understand what photography in the media, but the still image in particular, which is your preoccupation here, how do we even think about that as a component to these vast war machines? Well, maybe it's helpful to start where I started, really, which was with thinking about what happened after Vietnam uh, and when the U.S. military's immediate response to what became a a PR debacle, in a sense, uh, when all sorts of images started to be released into the media, which they didn't want people to see. Mm. And more than that, as the war progressed, that people started to be able to read those images uh, in ways that they didn't want them to be read. So it's not just a matter that atrocities were shown, some very famous ones, like um, the burning by napalm of uh, Kim Phuc, but that people understood that these images were part of a systematic, even genocidal effort against the Vietnamese peasantry. So the immediate reaction of the Pentagon then was to say, well, okay, we won't allow photographers into the war zone anymore. This they did for quite a long time. But that broke down for various reasons. Uh, one was to do with the fact that after a while they couldn't control it anymore, especially as technology mm-hmm. uh, increased and uh, you know, satellite communications became easier. Uh, so it was m- more difficult for them to exclude photographers from the, from the war zones. So they then moved to thinking, well, how do we control the ones that are yeah. there? And really, in many ways, not just in terms of the media, but also in terms of military strategy, the Iraq war was supposed to be the negative image, the opposite of Mm -hmm. the war in Vietnam. So it was meant to be short, focused, with really clear aims. It was supposed to be mostly done with um, small groups of spearhead elite troops moving very fast in the Mm -hmm. kind of blitzkrieg model. And those were to be people were to be accompanied by photographers who were not directly censored, but because they were embedded with the military for long periods of time, they couldn't leave military protection because they lived uh, and worked and were aided by those military units. The idea was that they would come to strongly identify with them, which for the most part did happen, uh, and would produce a spectacular view of war, which could be used as a military tool in many ways but one which was highly sympathetic to you know, the U.S. military operations. And it was a great success at first, it must be said this. Um, first, the military campaign was a success in toppling the Iraqi regime and destroying its army. Well, kind of destroying. Many of them ran away, in part because they were seeing these images and yeah. were not prepared to fight for Saddam. So as I say, it, it, at first, this, uh, this idea of the revolution in military affairs mm. in which all information, including media channels, were kind of focused into the war effort. Uh, I mean, a great example of this is the um, attack on on Iraqi government buildings with cruise missiles and bombers uh, in the opening night of the war. All this a sort of very bloody and spectacular firework display put on for the media who were camped out Mm -hmm. in a hotel across the the river Euphrates. 
And the idea of that, absolutely, was to use the images generated to discourage um, the Iraqi armed forces in particular, yeah. and perhaps the regime too. And because of the speed at which these images circulated, uh, again, it kind of worked. Uh, most of the Iraqi troops were not prepared to hang around to be slaughtered. Of course, in the long term, it all starts to come apart, uh, and particularly as uh, you know, the country spirals into guerrilla resistance and then virtual civil war, it starts to look a lot more like Vietnam again. The Americans can't get out. Uh, they're stuck there, you know, being subject to continual small-scale attack. So they become a police force for uh, a fabulously corrupt regime. And that's also a big parallel yeah. with Vietnam, uh, which is trying ostensibly to rebuild the country, but in fact is just channeling billions of dollars uh, into the pockets of whoever can steal it. Mm. Well, those images are very familiar to us at the moment, but Julian, I'm going to hazard a guess that you're not that much older than me. Therefore, neither you nor me saw the accounts of Vietnam in anything that could resemble contemporaneity. Um, but I think it's quite important to understand what it is that you are trying to do in a book for us to think a little bit about the kind of accounts that Vietnam produces in media and in photography in particular. Um, and I'm thinking about accounts produced by both sides. So I want you to tell us a little bit about the technologies that produce these media accounts, the kind of regimes and um, distribution mechanisms and, and mechanisms of censorship that end up supporting them. And if we can already start thinking maybe about the aesthetics of the, those images. In terms of the photography produced uh, on, on behalf of the Western media, it fell into two main kind of groups. There was the immediate news images, which were almost always black and white and were you know, shown in the newspapers the next day. They were rather faster to get to the news than TV at the time mm -hmm. uh, because the uh, TV tapes had to be shipped. So there's no way to yeah. transmit them. So these images would be taken by photographers uh, on sort of mini embeds, either with the Vietnamese army, South Vietnamese army, or the, uh, or the Americans, uh, and then uh, taken to an office in Saigon, looked through, printed up, and then that office would, you know, say the office Associated Press would have to decide which images it was going to send. And they had to be sent, be sent over radio. So there were wire transmissions over radio. They could be disrupted by the weather and <laughs> various other mm. events. And they could only send a few because it was a very yeah. slow process. Even though lots of pictures had been taken, they weren't necessarily seen or not immediately. And then you had feature photographers among the most famous of the war, including people like Philip Jones Griffiths or uh, Larry Burroughs, uh, Don McCullen. Um, those are the famous uh, British ones, but there are many others, Diamond Stone and so on, um, who worked for the illustrated magazines, the most famous of which was Life magazine. Yeah. And they could, although they, did, they didn't all, uh, make their work in colour. Uh, they would work on much more relaxed schedules. They didn't have to go back to the office every day. They could work, you know, take uh, extended time to cover stories. They also thought less in terms of single images than in terms of picture stories, how to yeah. assemble those. Were these feature photographers also usually embedded or were they more independent? Once you got accreditation 
um, which was the US military saying you were okay to work with them. Mm -hmm. You were not obliged to embed with them. But if you wanted access to the battlefield, that was really the only way that you could do it. So you would then, you know, ride in their transport and, you know, accompany uh, troops. Uh, But as I say, you could do other work. Philip Jones Griffiths is a good example of a photographer who spent quite a lot of time on U.S. Army operations, but more time really with Vietnamese civilians, working with them and working on on their living conditions, on the ways in which the occupation had affected them, and of course on the, you know, the terrible impact of vast amounts of U.S. bombing and shelling and napalm and destruction of the environment through Agent Orange and you know, bulldozing forests, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Embeds were important, and the military were courted by many photographers to get exclusive access, but at the same time it wasn't mandatory right. uh, in the way that it became more in Iraq. Well, I think it would be a shame for us to continue this conversation for much longer without tackling some of the images. And I should say that the book contains many dozens of reproductions of both color and black and white images. So it is a nice illustrated history, at the very least, of of the two conflicts. So I'd like to ask you to choose an image or a couple that we could have a look at and and maybe think through some of the aesthetic imperatives that determine what it is that audiences back at home end up seeing. And I'm going to paste a link to maybe a preview of one of these pictures into the show notes so listeners can check them out. I mean, one of the most well-known images of the Vietnam War is a notorious picture of the execution of a NLF suspect. That's a National Liberation Front. It's a sort of uh, respectable term for what was often called mm. the Viet Cong, uh, but yeah. which is the pejorative term in, in Vietnam. Uh, the guerrillas fighting the occupation. So uh, it, it shows the execution of an NLF suspect um, by the head of the police, the Saigon police, um, in the street during the Tet Offensive in 1968. It's become so famous partly because of what it shows, which is that you, know, you are literally seeing an execution at the moment it takes place. The bullet has left the police officer's gun that's entered the suspect's head. So the timing of it is very remarkable. And it's now often remembered perhaps more because of that than because of its political import. But at the time, its political import was quite explosive because the prisoner was bound. His hands were bound behind his back. Uh, So he'd been taken prisoner and was just shot in cold blood by this guy. And at the time, it was framed as a sort of justifiable act of revenge, although, you know, (laughs) <laughs> this is a very murky set of circumstances. It doesn't seem to actually be true. But this was the, the way, uh, for instance, which the New York Times used to try and kind of defang the political import of that image, which was spelled out very clearly by anti-war politicians who said, well, look, this is a clear violation of Geneva Codes of, yeah. uh, of, uh, of War. So the other thing that would have been known, certainly by many of the Vietnamese uh, or even by uh, Americans living there at that time. So this guy, uh, the, the head of police, Loan, uh, in Saigon, was in charge of this vast apparatus of um, torture, false imprisonment, and murder. So 
while this image was often in the West sort of pitched as this rather extraordinary picture of an extraordinary event, for those who were there, it was have been seen as, well, an extraordinary picture of a very common event, even at the hands of this very individual, let alone of the mm-hmm. apparatus that he uh, was governing. So there's a sense in which it does gear you into the wider horror of that war. And it was uh, used in exactly that way by the anti-war movement in the United States. That, I think, is a good introduction to really start thinking about the kinds of images that that particular conflict already produces. So on the one hand, we have the pro-war, pro-intervention PR that is still in its infancy, but it's orchestrated by the US military, the embed system, as you write in the book. So I'd like to, to you to talk about the types of imagery, literally photographic tropes that are being exported and what they end up doing to the US audience. And second, if, if that already starts happening in Vietnam, to think about the circulation of those images, but also images produced by the Vietnamese, by the Vietnamese resistance, and how the Vietnamese population, fighters and civilians, react to whatever access to images and image-making equipment they have. The aesthetics are, are quite variable in a way, uh, and they have quite complex formations, I think. So you have photographers who are going in who are really coming out of the humanist tradition uh, in photojournalism, whose photographic avatars are people like Henri Cartier-Bresson. So they're trying to, striving for, usually in black and white, a, a confluence of striking compositions, compositional coherence, but also coherent social storytelling, Mm -hmm. um, either at the level of the individual image or at the level of the picture story. Um, And in the latter, someone like W. Eugene Smith, the famous committed humanist photographer in the United States, uh, would be another model. So this is, it's universal or it seeks to be, it's deeply humanist, it's very expressive, it's emotional, it's quite dramatic. Mm. Uh, you know, shades of black and white. You see this in Philip Jones Griffith's work. You see it in a different way in Don McCullen's work, I think. People who can really, from very difficult, uncontrolled circumstances, produce social storytelling and you know, very striking compositions. You know, McCullen doing so while being shot at. I mean, it's a rare talent, that. <laughs> so that's one side of it. And then also, I think there's a there's a newer way for photography. People like Robert Frank, Diane Arbus, Gary Winogrand, Lee Friedland, and our others, uh, and their their work better known perhaps in the art world, but it sort of leaks into photojournalism as well. And of course, some of them start as photojournalists, where there's more questioning of that humanist basis, and indeed of the compositional means that underpin it. So much more casual and off-kilter arrangements, suggestions of you know, large empty spaces perhaps uh, in the image, which dwarf or otherwise you know, throw the, the figures in it into a sort of tension which suggests social alienation. The war was a deeply alienating setting, both for the troops, of course, who were you know, transported thousands of miles from home, dumped you know, many of them conscripts, 
dumped into a society they had little understanding of and in many cases were forced forced to debase it. And from the point of view of the Vietnamese, they understood the society, but it was changing extremely fast. There was the, the what part of the American strategy was this huge program of forced urbanization mm-hmm. at the point of the gun, really. And so people who had been peasants and were deeply embedded in the rural life and its rituals and religion and modes of labor found themselves living in slums in Saigon, other cities, and being forced to survive in whatever the way they could. So you get that anti-humanist or perhaps unhumanist mode of photography also applied to the description of this new, very dark, very disturbing, uh, and in a sense, somewhat deranged social reality. I mean, if you look at the work of Tim Page, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, he's someone who, in part, glories in the apparatus of war, but also has a very clear idea that it's unleashed some very, very dark psychic forces, um, which he documents meticulously in a kind of lurid color very often, and in ways which, photographic ways, which get at some of that social dislocation uh, and dysfunction, alienation and dread. What kind of circulation do these images get at the time? So apart from, of course, being being in the press and, and I presume also being screenshot and, and, and on television once in a while, do, do these images also circulate in in the art world, such as it is at the time, do they? Is there already a kind of clear crossover between the different spheres that might have an interest in in image production? Okay, so they circulate obviously first and foremost in the newspapers and magazines, and they circulate also in the anti-war Samizdat press, um, some of which had, you know, uh, like ramparts, for instance, were almost emulated life in their format, so they were quite glossy uh, magazines. So they had quite wide circulation. I think that's one of the big differences uh, between the Iraq War and the Vietnam War. But there were plenty of critical images made during the Iraq War, but especially early in that war, when it mattered, they weren't Mm. much published. So yeah, they were seen, uh, and the art world did indeed pick them up, or I should say rather the the anti-war, often rather marginalized aspect of the art world. People like Martha Rossler, of course, famously using those images uh, in a photo series called Bringing the War Back Home, and many others, you know, uh, circulating and working on on those images. Mm. Well, I'm going to ask you to speed up now, Julian, um, at least metaphorically. One of the things that you develop in a book is this idea of photographic speed, in which you observe a parallel between the kind of processes of technology of photography as it is used in Vietnam being slow, slow being a technical term that relates to film photography, um, and the rapid development in those technologies that mean that by the time we get to the 21st century, photography is technically a very different thing, but also, in a certain sense, photography speeds up in volume, in speed of transmission, um, speed of interpretation and circulation, to the extent that photography from being this kind of reflective medium that you have just described becomes a medium that can be understood to, in a certain sense, drive and create events. Well, what the book tries to do is, as you say, bring together different kinds of uh, speed uh, and think about speed, uh, both not only 
in terms of just a development from the 1960s to the present, but also the different speeds at which the different sides were moving. So I do look at uh, North Vietnamese and NLF photography quite a bit. Uh, and those photographers will have very, very limited means. Uh, they could only travel very slowly. They certainly couldn't send their pictures by wire, at least until the, the very last phase of the war. And so it might well be that an NLF photographer might be eking out a roll or two of film over many months, mm. then have to either take it or send it back up the Ho Chi Minh Trail to get to publication uh, in Hanoi. It might only find publication uh, a year after it was taken. So the very idea of what counts as photographic news in those circumstances is completely different from the model I was talking about earlier of you know daily either shipment yeah. or transmission by wire of, of, of film. So there's that, that, the speed of transmission and transport. There's the speed of film itself and well, with digital. It's not that the basic physics are transcended, but that it becomes possible to take images much more easily in circumstances that mm. would have been very, very challenging, if not impossible, for those using film in earlier days. There's the speed of the transmission of the film through the camera come to that, all sorts of things. But I think more fundamentally what I wanted to look at was the speed of cultural transmission. Um, and it's striking, as with the First World War in a sense, but with the Vietnam War too. But it was a long time before there seemed to be a settled and adequate way of depicting it, say, in film. Now, the, the famous you know, Vietnam War films come quite a lot later. Whereas one of the things that happens in Iraq really quite quickly is that there are pretty striking cinematic renditions. There are film series, some of them even starring um, troops taken from elite forces who are playing themselves, essentially. Uh, there are video games. Mm. And these things are seen quite immediately. The video games are maybe played by the troops in the field. And so you get this quite rapid sort of cycling and reinforcement of what this war is supposed to look like, you know, often in rather cliched ways. Uh, and the way in which it's supposedly conducted. So, I mean, I think that is quite new. And also the, the speed of reception as well is very different. I mean, we talked already about the way in which images are used as tools of war, uh, as, as very fast circulating propaganda devices. But it also makes a difference, I think, when you know, troops are able to see themselves depicted very soon after, if not immediately after, uh, you know, those, those photographs being taken. And one of the constraints of embedding, not an official one, but an unofficial one, was photographers being concerned that the troops that they were shown maybe misbehaving would get to see those images and then react and throw them out of the unit or threaten them or even mm. uh, hurt them. So, yeah, all of that changes, I think. Um, and I think it's also linked to something that David Harvey talks about in terms of postmodern culture which is that when you start to reach the limits that capitalism has to keep growing, obviously, to remain capitalism, uh, and when you start to reach the physical limits of exploiting the Earth's surface or bringing new people into the workforce, um, or colonial conquest and the rest of it, um, you have to start finding methods of growth which are to do not so much with physical things, but perhaps with various elaborate forms of the manipulation of money and stocks yeah. and shares and so on. 
but also cultural things too, that you can speed those, especially if they're digital, you can speed those up much faster uh, than anything else. So this idea that there's continual growth, continuing intensification, continual sort of um, move towards greater speed of circulation is sort of built into the very system. It's not, uh, it's not historically contingent in that sense. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, you say this, but the book identifies quite a few very big, pronounced, strategically designed shifts. So one of the things that you introduce earlier on in the book is there is the um, revolution in military affairs. You've already mentioned this term, but it's a term that's mm. official to the extent that it's an acronym. Um, it's essentially a concerted effort by the Pentagon to spend no less than $1.6 a billion or trillion dollars, honestly, in military in military terms, the, 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 the number of zeros at the end of the number doesn't really matter. We're talking mm-hmm. about the early 2000s when the Pentagon essentially has a PR operation which considers wholesale everything that it does from the embed to virtual reality to prognosis of what the image might look like. They, they really think about this in a way that no branding agency would be able to do for a chocolate bar. And, you know, and we have, as, as a result of that, we have these kind of almost contrite examples now of the this iconic footage of the statue of Saddam Hussein being toppled in Baghdad, which you point out in the book was, of course, not the kind of jubilant, spontaneous event that we were told it was. Mm. But see, that, that even that to me now seems like kind of almost trivial media manipulation. It's the kind of thing we, we expect but you, you you highlight in the book so many much more subtle but much more damning ways in which our media universe is essentially a military invention, almost as if the production and reception of media images is is a military intervention and a military invention. So I, I, maybe I could ask you to talk a little bit about some of the kind of far-flung aspects that, that, that you highlight to, to exemplify this. You talk about war games, virtual reality, and you give examples of a couple of very strange collaborations between the military regime and, and the entertainment industry, which, again, on reflection, nothing strange at all, because we, this, is, this is the films, the movies that we watch all the time. But you talk about games like Full Spectrum Warrior, and also about some artists who engage with these things. How how are we to think about these things in terms of their aesthetics and in terms of their long-term contribution to the perpetrator as an actor in, in some kind of a war reality? Uh, okay. I mean, I did an analysis of, of computer games uh, you know, way back in the 90s, uh, and when obviously the technology was very different. But one of the things that struck me, and I guess it's pretty obvious in retrospect, is that whereas, you know, if you were watching a John Wayne movie like The Green Berets, um, you may or may not believe it's propaganda, but your relationship to it is quite passive. If you're playing a war game, computer war game, uh, then in a sense you are obliged to perform 
uh, and conform to the rules. Okay? Uh, you either accept the game's rules largely and play it and do the killing that is required of you, or you don't play it. I mean, there's, there's very little room for, uh, certainly at that time, for uh, non-conformity or thinking about uh, wider consequences. So uh, in terms of perpetrators, I thought that was that's, that's significant, and it's something that the army definitely exploits. I mean, they make their own first-person shoot-em-up called America's Army. They use it as a recruiting tool. They're very aware of and exploit computer interfaces so that you'll find that you know, some of the weapons interfaces used in the U.S. Army resemble PlayStations, mm-hmm. and it's not an accident uh, because you know this is what they know their conscripts will be familiar with, and not only that, but they actually use the technology. Yeah, I mean that's just basic, basic user well. interface design <laughs> at some at some yes. trivial level. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so there's all that going on. Um, I mean, Lisa Barnard, uh, who's a very interesting photographic artist here, has done quite a lot of work on this military industrial use of the gaming environments, which is not only used for training, but also, um, you know, rather bizarrely in many ways for uh, helping people to get over PTSD after they come mm-hmm. back from uh, war zones, uh, that there's a sort of a safe way in a sense of rehearsing some aspects of what they've been through. Well, I think that the safety is quite a key word. And I want us to drill down a little bit on the move that photography and media make from being a record and a reproduction and a restaging at some instances of events to what to me seems like a completely different scenario in which photography is not only complicit, but produces abuses, produces conflict, produces war. You start the book by quoting Donald Rumsfeld, who at some point says that it's impossible, or at least tiresome, to try to conduct war in front of a camera. And by the time we get to 2003, to the images from Abu Ghraib, the images of torture uh, performed by US troops and military contractors on the, um, the enemy prison population, I kind of start reading into this an element by which the camera actually creates the torture. So there's a way in which documenting torture is, of course, a um, a tool of warfare, but trying to think a little bit about what happens with the perpetrators of torture, I'm, I'm almost I'm always inspired to think that photography eggs them on, so to speak. And I don't think this is a position you necessarily take in the book, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, I think that photography, almost since its invention, has been used for purposes which are tied up with violence and exploitation, especially with documenting victories over an enemy uh, and the humiliation and destruction of that enemy. You might think about photographs of the of the communards in Paris in their coffins, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, after the suppression of the commune in the 1870s. In 1870. So it's a long history. Um, it you know, one which has always been pursued also by photographic amateurs, especially soldiers, um, right back to the First World War or maybe even before that. So in a sense, in looking at the pictures of Abu Ghraib, there's nothing very new about them. But what is new is, well, there are two things, I think, which stand out about those images. 
One is that the, the camera itself was used as a weapon of, of torture or an instrument mm -hmm. of torture. This is because those prisoners were subject to blackmail threats. So when they were forced to simulate homosexual sex, for instance, they knew they were being recorded. They, the threat was always that you know these images would go get back to their friends and loved ones, that it would make life impossible for them, in, in, in essence, in, uh, in Iraq. And especially if, if they were women, that you know, they would be subject to honor killings and, and the rest mm. of it. So the camera was absolutely a tool of torture in that sense. I, I think that is new, and I think it's perhaps to do with uh, the fact that they were using digital images and they could show these images to the prisoners yeah. um, you know, at, the, at the point at which they were being taken. Uh, but it's not as if, of course, cameras have not been used for the humiliation of prisoners long before that. I think the other thing about Abu Ghraib is that, right, these are amateur images, and normally a huge amount of doubt hangs around amateur images. It's one of the very salient interventions of uh, Hirk van Kesteren in his book, Baghdad Calling, that he seeks to verify a lot of amateur images so that we can have some trust in what we're seeing. But generally, they circulate in these gray realms in which authenticity is uh, an attribution that's very, very hard to come by. And they're often recycled um, you know, and used on both sides of a political divide, for instance. The Abu Ghraib images, because they were acknowledged by the military and became the subject of a criminal investigation within the military, you know, they're very hard to disbelieve in mm -hmm. that sense. Uh, it was very hard to cast. It, there was lots of interpretative doubt cast about them, you know, whether this was really torture or merely a kind of high school hazing. So, you know, the, the regime, the Bush regime, you know, did its best to neuter those images in that way. What you couldn't do was just reject them and say that they were fakes, for yeah. instance. Uh, yeah, I think they were received very, very differently in the Middle East um, and in the and in the US and in allied countries. In the US, obviously, they were a source of quite a bit of shock that US troops would behave in this way, and of course, also the shock to some extent that women were involved in this. Mm -hmm. In Iraq, as um, Robert Fisk and others say. They were taken as another piece of evidence for something that was extremely well known. And it wasn't as if these were aberrations in any sense, just standard operating practice. The, the fact that they happened to have been recorded and then released uh, and officially sanctioned, that's the only unusual thing about them. In that sense, there's a certain parallel, I think, with the Eddie Adams picture, with the execution picture. Yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned the problems of authenticity and interpretation want to ask you about your take and how you integrate the multiplicity of those kind of narratives. So Iraq, of course, is different from Vietnam in a sense that the media warfare is a little bit more balanced between the sides. It's not like Iraq has a massive media infrastructure, but we do have channels like Al Jazeera coming into existence and taking a structured and, and very alternative view. How do we piece all of these pieces together? Because we have the Pentagon doing its own PR. We have the media being semi-independent, but also not so semi, not so independent. We have Western soldiers doing their own photography. We have Iraqis doing their own photography for a variety of different reasons. How do we take a step back and think about the nature of photography as evidence, as a testament to something that then composes history. 
not only because we have now so many sources at the same time, but because these sources cannot really be assumed to be independent even of the kind of filtration and manipulation mechanism that we have already understood. Okay, well, it's a very big question. In a sense, <laughs> uh, I hope that the book, as it stands, uh, is, is a sort of answer to it, in a sense, because what, it, what, what yeah. the book tries to do is to take this large variety of, of images, not to take any of it uh, on its own terms entirely, but to contextualize it, to think about it historically, technologically, politically, uh, in terms of the media, in terms of military strategy. Uh, and you know many other elements in terms of political constitution of the state to some extent and how it declares enemies with this, um, and to provide an account which allows you to see this this sort of field of war imagery, very diverse war imagery, not as a unitary field but as a competing field of different interests, I suppose, and the kinds of moves that people make within that field. So that's why, in a, in a sense, the book is as long and as complex as it is, because it's not you know, easy to do that. Also, it, it, it traces really a huge transformation of that field. I mean, if one thinks about Vietnam, yes, there were US soldiers using their own cameras and taking many atrocity pictures, for instance, but we tended not to get to see those mm -hmm. uh, because they were physical prints and you know they were just kept quiet and maybe hidden under in boxes under beds for a long time before relatives destroyed them and that kind of thing. Um, a few leak out, but not much. And then you have the Western media, which we've discussed to some extent, and then you have the, the Vietnamese doing their images as well. Not many uh, amateur Vietnamese because the technology is unavailable and too expensive, especially mm -hmm. in the North. But those images are not so available in the West. They're used a bit by the anti-war movement and they're occasionally collated into anti-war books like Felix Green's Vietnam, Vietnam. So that, that happens a bit, but it's very easy not to see them. And certainly you wouldn't see them in the mainstream press. They were essentially banned. Okay. Despite the fact that they're remarkable images, aesthetically, technically, uh, socially and otherwise. I mean, they're, they're very, very fine images, ones which would surely have found an audience if they were allowed to appear. But there was a complete ban on them, essentially. And it takes a, a full generation, really, uh, over 30 years, for them to start to be the subject of exhibitions and books. So that's, that's one thing. And it, it has another consequence, actually, because the Vietnamese know that the, their own images will not find much circulation in the press. They do things to help the Western press, and they tend to mm. project, protect journalists, for instance, and photojournalists operating mm. at the front. And very few are killed by line-of-sight weapons by the enemy. Uh, and they have an extensive spying network which runs through Associated Press and, and other press agencies, yeah. so they know where these people are going to be. By the time of the Iraq War, things have really obviously changed profoundly. And you mentioned Al Jazeera, which is you know, really important, uh, and other um, non-Western news outlets which can provide a different photojournalistic and video and you know video uh, experience and different sorts of interpretations and ones which are for instance fixed on Iraqi citizens and civilians rather than on military operations so that's hugely important but the other thing is that the the emerging you know resistance groups which are very various uh, and you know fissured in all sorts of ways by ethnicity and religion particularly um, tribal affiliation and so forth 
they make their own media, right? And they can mm -hmm. distribute it um, at first on on DVD, but later, you know, over the internet as uh, as it begins to take off um, in Iraq. So they don't need the the Western media, and in fact, they come to see the Western media, which is much more, in, you know, to generalize, much more clearly aligned with the US military and with mainstream thinking it had been in Vietnam, they see them as a resource to be exploited, either to be killed for propaganda or to be kidnapped for money. And so it quickly becomes very, very difficult to make uh, uh, imagery in Iraq. And the normal practice of photojournalism is more or less closed down. You know, the New York Times compound is protected by um, watchtowers with belt-fed machine guns on. Um, there's no way you can go out without a huge military escort and that kind of thing. And so there's a there's a way in which the situation becomes so dangerous that normal photographic reporting from on the western side from Iraq uh, almost ceases. And they start to have to rely a lot on Iraqi photographers, many of whom are very committed, very brave, and very interesting uh, uh, people. But but it's not easy for them to work either. It's still very, very dangerous. Yeah, but that's that's just an example, I suppose, of that huge transformation of the image field and the way in which it fishes as well, I think, because there's there's no example of that kind of hostility between the different image-making groups, I think, in the same way as in Vietnam. Let's keep moving, though, because there is a way in which warfare continues to change its nature so in a way that the, the war on warfare just changes territory, the enemy occasionally becomes rebranded, one underlying change that we do notice and that you do write about in the book is the move towards drone and aerial warfare. That um, is the characteristics of the time of the Obama administration. So one of the things that seems to happen is that to record this kind of warfare on the ground becomes to an extent more difficult. And I guess I'm seeing a little bit of a problem for traditional media organizations in, in doing this, how one covers operations that don't necessarily manifest in material other than that provided by the Pentagon or the armed forces. That becomes a little bit problematic. And I'm interested in a way in which that particular moment brings war to the attention of a certain new generation of artists. I'm thinking of people like Trevor Paglen, James Bridle, or Omar Fast. So um, I want to ask you a little bit about the change in the aesthetics, but also the mode of production of photography as we move to the era of drone warfare. I mean, I, you know, I think it's an exaggeration to say that these, uh, these issues such as drone warfare drop out of the media entirely. I mean, the, mm. uh, you know, there are honorable people who continue to uh, research this area, even to try and photograph it uh, on the ground uh, and to rehearse it, uh, to research it journalistically. I mean, Medea Benjamin, for instance, is one of the people who've written a really good book uh, about drone warfare and its effects on those people who are subject to it, and not just those who are directly harmed by being blown up, but those people who live under the threat that they might be all the time with you know mm -hmm. terrible psychological effects over you know huge swathes of you know bits of Pakistan and then Afghanistan in particular. That, so there's that side. Uh, but I think you you're right that 
you know, many artists have started to do really interesting, have uh, for quite a long time now, been doing really interesting work in this area. And I suppose it's because, in a sense, that the what comes out of official channels is rather poor material. It's either kept secret, uh, entirely secret, and we get, don't get to see it, or on occasion when they want to declare some kind of victory that someone has been successfully mm. targeted or whatever, you get to see a bit of rather poor quality video. So, yes, uh, an opportunity opens for artists um, such as James Bridle or Irma Fast to really explore that image world and to create new kinds of ways of visualizing and feeling about this. Bridle is one of those interesting people who sort of straddles research uh, yeah. and uh, art practice in a sense uh, and, you know, offers new information as well as, you know, new ways of visualizing. Uh, the drone strike uh, issue. Uh, Fast is someone who, in that remarkable film, Best from 5,000 Feet, imagines another world in which someone more like you, the, the putative viewer, uh, might be targeted by these things. Mm. Um, and you know, you see an American family who are blown up in their station wagon. But also, you know, with these remarkable aerial shots of Las Vegas which, of course, is yeah. very close to where some of these bases are out of which the, where the drone pilots um, do their work, you know, is giving you a rich and detailed and impressive and emotive vision of the drone pilot's view. So, yeah, I, I, and there are many, many other artists who've worked in this, in this area. And I think it is, it's an open field, I think, uh, where artists can make uh, quite striking uh, political and re sometimes research-led uh, contributions, uh, just because otherwise the issue is so subterranean. As I say, the, the visual images around it are very poor. Hmm. Well, one of the things that artists tend to do, if I can hazard this simplification, is that they produce quite often memorable singular images that are sometimes abstractions of a certain set of ideas or certain realities. And I wanted to ask you about the role of singular iconic images in the present. Of course, your book is filled with accounts and reproductions and theorizations of many such images that have already circulated in public consciousness, have contributed in the way that we described to the, the production of, of those events in a certain sense. But do you see this kind of production ongoing? Do singular images still exist? Is there something that still comes out, comes to represent a particular event? Yeah, my, my suspicion is that the, the occasional production of images that became become iconic and are remembered collectively by large groups in the public and, and, and get published over and over again, that it may have ceased. I'm not sure because it may be too soon to tell. Uh, you can mm. only really know if an image is going to be iconic and, and, and last through decades uh, after time has passed. But I think the effect of the sheer number of images, as you say, the flow of images over social media um, does suggest that um, it's the power of the icon is fading. And I think it was even fading in Iraq, although there were some uh, examples of professional photojournalism which looked like they were going to get that kind of traction. Um, they're not so well known anymore, those images. And the ones that are 
uh, were made by amateurs, which is striking in itself, particularly mm. the Abu Ghraib images. Although even those, it seems to me, have been uh, fading from public consciousness somewhat. Yeah, I wonder to what extent the algorithm at certain point takes over. You know, there's some kind of perversity in being the U.S. Defense Secretary, logging into Facebook and Facebook saying, your memories from 10 years ago, remember what atrocities you were, <laughs> you were committing at the time. But, but, but again, this is not a trivial point. It deals with how the image changes its roles in the mediation of, of collective memories. And this is something that you, you devote a whole section to in the book. Yes, and, and of course you're, you're quite right that the, uh, the image is no longer simply an image, but uh, a, you know a, a data point uh, among others, and with lots of associated kind of metadata carried along with it, and uh, subject to all kinds of uh, uh, yeah of manipulation into individually tailored you know media streams, and that in itself obviously tends to vitiate the public sphere in which the iconic image operates. And of course, the algorithm takes us from the question of mimetic reproduction to the question of mimetic production itself. I'm thinking in particular about the role of memes in various forms of warfare, which you do address in the book. And this has been on my mind in particular because I've been writing a little bit about what happens in the media and the meme space of events like the Taliban's takeover of Kabul last year which was, I think, this kind of masterpiece of media manipulation to an extent. So we saw these images of the Taliban fighters entering Kabul effortlessly, of course, and, and playing on dodgems in a, in a park, uh, going to the gym, eating ice cream, mocking up the, the Iwo Jima um, image for their own purposes. So there's a certain extent in which the media representations having kind of gone from, from the control of, of organizations like the Pentagon moves into a more independent sphere, possibly moves into the artistic realm, and now is just subject of this kind of media speculation and mimetic reproduction. So I wonder, wonder how you, you started thinking about this. The issue of them being better at it, uh, it, it kind of... It was obviously a question which hung around ISIS media productions as well, yeah. you know, um, some years ago, that people were surprised by the polish and sophistication mm. um, of their uh, propaganda campaigns. And I think one of the things it enables us to see is that a great deal of photojournalism, um, as it is filtered and appears in the mainstream Western press, is also propaganda of of that sort which is not necessarily to condemn it but you know i hope that one of the things that the book does is to help you to see that you know there are always agendas of that kind yeah. at play if the taliban seem to be better at it for the moment than we are then that's not this unconnected from their victory i think which you know is so so striking and i suppose that one of the hopeful things that comes out of what can be uh, a rather bleak read um, uh, in Killing for Show is this idea that American military power has failed, and not just in Afghanistan recently, but, you know, that huge apparatus of the revolution in military affairs that you mm. described, the vast sums that they, they spend on their military more generally, and you know, the fact that 
know, their military spending, I think, outweighed the rest of the world at one point, uh, the whole of the rest of the world taken together. But in the end, they couldn't even hold down the Iraqi insurgency and had to get out of there. This is a vast failure. It's, um, one should say, the British army um, covered themselves in disgrace too. I mean, not just in terms of their behavior, but also in terms of um, uh, military efficacy. So, you know, this apparatus, the, the Pentagon and the military industrial complex, which was designed to fight two major wars at once, or a, a major war on two fronts at once, say to fight Russia and China at the same time, as I say, could not even hold on to these small, um, these small countries, um, let alone rebuild them or anything like that. So it's, and it's, I think it's a deep failure of, of the neoliberal state as well, in a sense, that it's the way in which it's weakened the state and state capacities and state expertise and the way in which it is, you know, fantastically and sort of constitutionally corrupt, all of this has, you know, meant that it can, it's no longer a convincing world mm. uh, hegemon. Uh, and, you know, it opens a way for, obviously, a multipolar a world, which may not be any less dangerous, but uh, at any rate is not um, necessarily committed to this very destructive Anglo-American model of capitalism. Well, that's a very bleak moment to end on, Julian. There's so much, <laughs> okay. so much more in the book that we haven't, we haven't even begun to scratch for. I'm just a couple of things to mention. You cover in quite a lot of detail the affairs of Guantanamo Bay and, and the role of images, images there. The, the what happens when there's nothing to photograph anymore when you know how how we document the kind of failure to reconstruct the state and the kind of lingering after effects mm. of war that, that's quite enough and i i just want to again <laughs> in a small way as a, as an advert recommend this to anyone who has a university library and is in the business of designing an undergraduate or indeed a postgraduate course on on media theory um incredibly impressive work i want to thank you thank you for it what happens next in your own research i hope i hope but i think that's a vain hope that you're going to move into something slightly more cheerful it's funny that you say that um and i started to get interested in cultural populism um oh, wow. and its relations with political populism uh, uh, some years ago when it seemed like a, a cheerier subject than it is now so uh, that's what i've been working on but uh it, it won't be a at least it it has elements of um, social comedy to it, I think, uh, <laughs> and some of the artwork is very entertaining. So um, yeah, it's it, it won't be like this book. <laughs> oh, Julian, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for your questions and, and your thoughts. The link for show: photography, war, and the media in Vietnam and Iraq by Julian Stalabras is published by Roman and Littlefield. I'm Pierre Valencin, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.